1877, the antiquarian William Jones wrote of a curious tradition of wedding rings observed among one small community living on the west coast of Ireland. The clasped hands, originating from the ancient Romans, are still the fashion and in constant use in that curious local community of fishermen inhabiting the Clada and Galway on the western coast, Jones wrote. They number with their families between five and six thousand and are particularly exclusive in their tastes and habits, rarely intermarrying with others than their own people. The wedding ring is an heirloom in the family. It is regularly transferred from the mother to the daughter who is first married and so passes to her descendants. Many of these gemmel rings still worn there are very old. Two hands clasping a heart topped with a crown. This was the famous Cladder Ring, which has spread from its Galway origins to become an international symbol of Irish identity, friendship and romance. One of the most popular designs is sold by Solvar, an Irish family jewellery business, now in its third generation, which sells designs inspired by Irish heritage and history. From the swirled stone carvings of pre-Christian Ireland to the Celtic knotwork of the Book of Kells. I spoke to Marcus Obernick, the grandson of the founders of Salvar, to ask him why these ancient designs have such enduring appeal. I think these are just these are just ancient symbols. I think Ireland is unique in that it has these symbols that mean a lot to the country and to the people of Ireland. For example, you know, the Celtic cross. Every little town around Ireland was built around a Celtic cross. That's how the towns, a lot of them, started, and the towns grew and built out from that. And if you go down outside of Dublin to some of these smaller country towns, you'll still see these ancient Celtic crosses there. The the Trinity Knot and Celtic Knots are in all the old manuscripts. They can be seen on churches, they can be seen in books, they can be seen in windows nowadays. And then the the clad is just one of those ancient, beautiful stories that has been around for years, and it hits everyone. It hits people who've emigrated, people who've moved back to Ireland, and then any tourist that comes to Ireland, nearly everyone buys a cladder ring. Marcus has noticed a resurgence in popularity of the cladder ring in recent years, as it's discovered and embraced by a younger generation who are keen to wear their Irish identity openly. I don't know what it is, but in the last year or two, I've started to notice a lot more young Irish people wearing cladder rings. Uh, you see a lot of like online, you know, Instagram influencers type people who are promoting it now who you never would have thought of. So having that Irishness is actually quite a proud, I think people are starting to realize it's quite a proud thing to have. It's, and the clada is a great symbol for that. It's just that nice, subtle hint of I'm Irish and I'm proud. You can find Salvar Jewellery for sale over at our kind sponsors, biddymurphy.com. Specialists in authentically Irish gifts and produce made on the island of Ireland. When it comes to Salvar, you can be certain the jewellery is 100% Irish made. Each gold and silver item will be stamped with the mark of the Irish Assay Office in Dublin Castle, which has had the responsibility to test and certify precious metals in Ireland since 1637. It's that kind of authenticity you can expect over at Biddy Murphy, not just with Salvar, but with all the products sold on the site, as Marcus explained. We like solve our products sitting beside other products that are genuinely Irish as well. So it's great to have a supplier that, that you know everything is sourced and manufactured and comes from Ireland. And when your products are sold in that environment, uh, alongside whether it's 
tweeds or knitwear and everything comes from Ireland, it creates a very strong brand and a very secure place for people to come to knowing that everything on that site, not only Salvar, is genuinely Irish. You'll hear more about that curious community of the Clada in this episode. I'll hand over to Tim now, straight from his hometown of Galway. Hello, welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Okay, well to Naomi. Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Rome boasts seven hills, the Nile its sevenfold stream, around the poles seven radiant planets gleam, but Galway, Connacht's Rome, twice equals these, she boasts twice seven illustrious families. Welcome back to the Irish Passport Podcast. Those lines come from a famous 17th century map of Galway, a small city on the west coast of Ireland, and, yes listeners, my own hometown. The map itself is an exquisite piece of art, detailing practically every house and garden in the city, just as they stood back in 1664. But it was also a carefully conceived piece of propaganda. Just a few years previously, the city of Galway had fallen to Cromwell's invading army. Now. With Cromwell himself safe in the ground, the infamous Tribus Galvia, the tribes of Galway, were setting out to reclaim the city as their own. This is a, a really famous map of Galway. It's quite beautiful. When was this made? Around 1664. Um, all the merchant families of Galway had copies of this map in their house. And where were they? they would have put that over the fireplace or something, I suppose? Yes, exactly, Sean. This was our town. By God, we were going to get it back. <laughs> That was pretty much the motivation. That's the voice of historian Adrian Martin, the author of The Tribes of Galway, 1124-1642. In this episode, he'll be taking me on a tour around the winding streets of this medieval city and explaining why it has gone down in history as the city of the tribes. right up against Ireland's wild and windswept Atlantic coast, wedged between a sweeping great bay and the torrenting river mouth of Loch Corrib, Galway has always been a place of dramatic contrast. To the south, it looks out across the sea to the great bald limestone mountains of the Burn. To the east, it opens into the rolling fields of Athenry, and to the west, it provides the gateway to the wind-burned rockscape of Connemara. In this part of the country, the open Atlantic carries the full force of the Gulf Stream, Clouds glide past overhead like a swarm of enormous airplanes. Blankets of rain dance and twirl around you, and when the sun is kind enough to emerge, it's as crisp and salty hot as on the deck of a ship. 
The city itself has always been a place of transience and exchange. With a population of only 80,000 today, 20% of whom are students, Galway attracts over 2 million visitors a year. No prizes for guessing why. The city's strategic location has turned it into one of Ireland's biggest tourism hubs, with a full schedule of festivals and events bringing hordes of revellers to its streets throughout the season. Its proximity to the country's largest Gaeltacht, or Irish-speaking region, means that it has also become a flagship urban outpost for the Irish language, as well as traditional music and dance. In the 70s and 80s, this city became a haven for hippies and artists and all kinds of nonconformists, and ever since its streets have been renowned for year-round spectacle and performance. It was a very different story back when the Normans first arrived here in the 12th century. Back then, this place was the frontier of civilization a walled citadel deep in the heart of Gaelic Ireland, and an outpost at the very fringes of the known world. I'm Adrian Martin. I'm the author of uh, The Tribes of Galway, 1124-1642, which was published in 2016, and I'm a Galway historian. Okay, and we're here on a very beautiful day in, in sunny Galway City. And w- can you explain what we're just standing outside? This is... Aaron Sweater Market. They have PR pushed straight away there for a newly opened business. And uh, the thing about it is, um, it's built on the foundations of uh, what became Dungalivar. This is where Galway City actually begins. Back in 1124, the then King of Ireland, Tartelloc O'Connor, built what was the first castle in Ireland, right here on this spot. Ninety years later, when the Normans invaded, they took over the site and, as they did, rebuilt a new castle on the site of it. Earlier on this year, uh, archaeologists working under the direction of Frank Coyne found the Norman castle and traces of the earlier um, uh, Irish castle on this spot here. So this is literally where Galway begins. I'm standing with Adrian at the very bottom of Key Street, a colourful thoroughfare which opens up onto the city's old fish market. Here, until the early 20th century, fisherwomen from the other side of the river would gather here in their long woolen shawls with great big baskets of fish on their heads, hawking the freshest catch of the day to the city folk. Now, all that remains of the original castle is a bare stone house which sells traditional woolen sweaters to tourists. Okay, and, and Dungaliva, that means the fort of, of Galway. And like, uh, there's lots of different stories about what the word Galway means. Do you know what it, it is? Oh, there's loads of great stories. All of them, unfortunately, Sheffield. But entertaining Sheffield. Like, I mean, the, the one that everybody knows, of course, is that uh, the daughter of um, a, a local uh, king drowned in the river, and her name was Galiev, and so it was called after her. It's almost true, because um, it was pointed out up to Reese about 100 years ago, a rock called after her where the, her body was found. But in actual fact, Galway is um, a reasonably commonplace name, and it means basically Rocky River. Okay. And of course that's what Galway is. It's not a river that runs through silt or, uh, or you know, the soil or anything. It runs right through the limestone, so it's actually factually descriptive. Let's talk about the river for a moment. The Carob River dominates everything about this city. Its bridges are still to this day the only crossing point from the populous east to the western Gaeltacht of Connemara, and culturally it has long been seen as the boundary between those two worlds. Certainly it makes for some boundary. Its six-kilometre stretch is the only link between Loch Carob, the biggest lake in the Republic of Ireland, and the sea. And the enormous pressure of that huge body of water thundering into the bay makes this tiny river one of the fastest flowing in Europe. The dark water torrents day and night through the centre of the city, making it no surprise that it gave rise to the legend of Golov, ancient daughter of Brazil, who was said to have drowned in its currents. Sadly, the fast-flowing waters continue to claim lives on a regular basis today, and have in many ways become a local symbol of the country's ongoing mental health crisis. 
And so this place here, right at this spot actually, was where the river used to run up to. And that was called Bun, Bun Galliv, the mouth of the Galway River. Okay. And when Sardellac planted his castle here, he built a settlement on it, so it was known as Dun Galliv, or Fort Galway. This is significantly before the Normans. It didn't adhere to exactly Norman structure, but it was sufficiently different from what went beforehand that they had to make up a new term for it. What are we going to call this? We'll use what those sort of fancy French lads over in England are, are, are using. Cashel. So they introduced the word Cashel, you know, into um, 12th century Ireland to describe this new fortification here. So, so this building was the first building to be called a castle, essentially, in, in Ireland. Ireland. Yes. Oh, so yes. These yes. would have been Gaelic uh, lordships, I suppose? Kingdoms, yeah. I mean, the guy who built this uh, he, uh, was Tertelic O'Connor, and he was king of uh, Connacht from, what, 1106 to 1156, and he was king of Ireland from 1120 to 1150. Mm. I mean, he's a longer reign than Brian Baru. Okay. And uh, when I was young, this was kind of uh, plastered over, and it looked like a normal house, but I yeah. see it now. The, the stonework has been exposed, and it's really beautiful. Uh, yeah, right? the, that's, the, that's the original stonework here, uh, based from the early 1500s. Galway was progressively built. Dungalliaf was built under the uh, Gaelic Irish kings. Then he had uh, the Norman de Burghs coming here up till uh, the uh, 1330s. Uh, would they have been welcomed by the by the Gaelic? Oh God, not at all. There were several battles back and forth between the O'Connors and the O'Flaherty's uh, for control of it. But eventually, for one reason or another, the de Burghs um, gained control of the place and they planted their settlers in the area. And here we finally meet the famous tribes of Galway. These so-called tribes were actually a veritable oligarchy of rich merchant families who controlled the city's economic and commercial life from the 13th right up to the 19th century. The tribes were the ones who essentially transformed this strange little frontier town into a thriving and prosperous centre for international trade, mostly by exploiting Galway's sea routes to continental Europe and most especially Iberia. Fourteen tribe families donning the ancient names of Athai, Blake, Bodkin, Brown, Darcy, Dean, Font, French, Joyce, Kerwin, Lynch, Martin, Morris, and Skerritt, steadily built the city into a mercantile haven. The mouth of the Galway River soon thronged with Spanish galleons laden with wine, spices, and silk, and the defensive settlement of Dun von Nagalava was steadily festooned with the urban mansions of the city's new burgher class. Some of these tribal families married well, such as the Lynches. Mm. And the Lynches, uh, by the uh, early 1300s, began to become a fairly well-to-do family. Other families, in, like say the Blakes, um, were of a similar status. And they kind of elbowed out all the other uh, Norman tenants in the family, in the, in the settlement. And of course, all the Norman ten um, tenants in the area had elbowed out all the locals. You have all these elite people uh, coming in and coming and going. But underneath it, you have an awful lot of the, um, how would say, the landless the labourers and whatnot staying in place. For example, uh, um, the, the Martins. I've had great trouble researching them. They just appear out of nowhere, and it's after the Black Death. I think they were they were probably native Irish. I mean, they're officially English families. But when I began doing uh, the research, I found more and more on Whale Marching, Met Marching, Maguilla Martin. I'm having a tr real trouble finding any uh, ethnic English family surnames Martin West of the Shannon. This is Kerwin's Lane uh, at the moment that we're standing on. They were originally, again, Gaelic Irish, but they were of the, the same caste 
as uh, the families within Galway. They weren't noble, but they were of, uh, shall we say, the merchandised background, so they could marry in with each other. And the Kerwins had trouble with the, uh, the Birminghams out in the country, so they up sticks and moved into here into Galway. Within a generation, there were mayors. And the morality is where the, uh, the term the tribes of Galway came from, because it didn't exist up to around the 1650s or 60s. You never come across any mention of them in their heyday, of them referring to themselves as the tribes of Galway. They were just the Galway men, the Galway merchants, the Galwegians. But if you look at all the families who are now the 14 tribes of Galway, they have one thing in common. Each and every one of them had mayors or sovereigns of Galway. A sovereign was the uh, equivalent of the, the head town councillor. And then the 1400s, they, they got solidified into a corporation that became mayors of Galway. Um, so to bring it all together then, you, you have, you have a, a walled Norman city uh, being yes. built on this site, which gets progressively taken over by these kind of burgher families, I suppose. Yes, not, not the elite, because there wasn't any lords in here. There was no de Birminghams, there wasn't any uh, Burks or anything like that. They worked very hard to work alongside them but keep them out right because if you look at uh, many other fm uh, towns in ireland that did uh, that were ruled by lords they tend to dominate the place and ease out the other families and that the likes the lynches and the blakes certainly didn't want that they worked up it took a long time for them to work up through the ranks to get to uh, uh, how to say the elite, uh, elite status, even though still non noble, a very dis important distinction. This, certainly, they were going to marry among them if, if need be, but they didn't allow them in, okay. except on their terms. Okay, all right. And now, like, Galway is still kind of notable for having these big business families that everyone kind of knows to be yeah. notorious. Why do you think the city is so uh, like receptive to this kind of social structure? Uh, I suppose if you elbow your way in hard enough you'll get to the top. It's as simple as that. I could say that it's culture or this, that or the other, but it isn't. It's just hard-nosed business. business. The, 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 uh, the strong survive and the weak suffer what they must, as the saying goes, you know? And it, it's a case of enablement. Mm. I mean, just take the lynches, for example. It obviously took them several generations to get up the social ladder. And once they, there, they were there, they fought very hard to stay in place. I mean, as far as I know, it's fairly, uh, the lynches are fairly unique. You don't get many other plebeian common working class families who managed to get up and stay in place from say the late 1200s into the early 1900s mm. and the lynches certainly did that in Galway the problem was from, this, from a certain point onwards in the 1600s they became gentrified, they stopped being working merchants you know, gentlemen don't work. Right. So they were taking in money, but not working for it. So they didn't really know the value of money anymore. And that was the, uh, that's what I, I think killed off many of the families economically in the end. They became gentlemen. They didn't remain working merchants. The ones who did thrived and survived, but most didn't. They became gentlemen and got estates and became leisured gentlemen. And that was, the, that, that was their problem then in the end. Perhaps the most famous symbol of the city comes from a district just outside these city walls walls and on the other side of the turbulent Carob. The Clara is one of the oldest fishing villages in Ireland. It used to be known for its dense streetscape of low thatched cottages, which sadly were mostly demolished after Irish independence and replaced by the new government with sanitary council housing in the 1930s. This area was traditionally ruled by a village king whose boat would wave a black sail and who oversaw the community's control of the fishing rights in Galway Bay. Legend has it that this fishing rivalry gave rise to the iconic Cladder Ring, which depicts two hands clutching a crowned heart, and which would identify the wearer as a real Cladder fisherman. Since then, the Cladder Ring has become a symbol for Irish emigrants all over the world. Oddly enough, it even became a pretty important plot point in an early series of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But I'll let you Google that yourself.
Standing just in front of the Clattering Museum, yeah. which is quite a famous symbol, of course. Lots of um, people in, in Irish America will probably recognize it. Yes. It's got two hands holding a heart with a crown on top. Yeah. Um, how old is this, and would the tribes have known a symbol like this? Oh, they most certainly would have. I mean, this goes back to at least the 18th century, maybe a little bit earlier. I mean, nobody's quite sure how far back it goes, because uh, an awful lot of the rings were made by the Kaza people, of course, but an awful lot of them were sold for uh, immigrants uh, to pay for their uh, passage going to either Britain or America uh, during the 1840s and afterwards. And we do have examples going back before that, and Dillon's is the best place to go in and see the surviving ones. But we uh, are unsure. Uh, uh, certainly the 18th century. How much before that? Anybody's guess. They were there living in har- well, I won't say living in harmony, but in symbiosis at least with the town. And we do have statues dating back from the late 1490s, early 1500s, saying fishermen shall do this and fishermen shall do that. You know, regulating the ways that the, t- the town operated, uh, in, in along with uh, the people of presumably the Clada. Now, when it was called the Clada, we don't know, but I mean, it, it literally just means the strand, and the strand is where fishermen boat their ships. Okay, well, and would it be fair to say then that English was always spoken within the walls and Irish was spoken? without the walls? No, the other way around. English and Irish was spoken within the walls and English and Irish was spoken without the walls. Because, yes, I mean, don't, don't get me wrong, this was an English settlement, but from the very first you have, you, you, you have records of them working and operating with um, Irish people. I mean, among the first records we have of the Lynches is uh, of a, a lady called Margaret Ballach the Lynch. Now, Margaret is obvious, and the Lynch is obviously Norman, but Ballach is not. Where did she get that name? It's a it's an Irish name, it means speckle, so either she survived the Black Death and it left her with facial scars or maybe scabies or something like that, or as I prefer to think, she was just freckled, you know. Mm. But, but the word proves that they're living and interacting with the, with the Irish on a very intimate basis if they're using a familiar name like that for her. In fact, in one uh, document I have, she's not called the Lynch at all, she's just known as Margaret Belloc. She don't know who she is. English people would have used Irish speaking to Irish people. Irish people would have used English speaking to English people. So they would have been bilingual at the very basic. And of course, they were living in a culture that was saturated with uh, the church. So they would have known three languages, Gaelga, English and Latin. And if you're going abroad to France, naturally you had to speak what the English spoke, French. Our next stop was the Hall of the Red Earl, a medieval banqueting hall hidden down the tiny and winding Druid's Lane. The site was only discovered by accident in the 1990s and continues to reveal secrets of the medieval city. For one thing, Adrian told me, it was a building which had unexpected links to English royalty. You know this is uh, the old part of town because the streets are, for whatever reason, quite narrow. I'm just going to show you very quickly now uh, yeah. Customs House excavations which unearthed the Hall of the Red Earl back 20 years ago. Now, the Red Earl was uh, William uh, Rua de Burgh, who was the second Earl of Ulster. And he was known as the Red simply because he had red hair. Presumably. Oh right, yeah. yeah. So this is a, this is a huge site, really, and we have a kind of cruciform um, section in the middle. What, what do you think that was? That was uh, is much later than the original foundation. That was an iron smelting spot built sometime in the late 17th century, uh, and as you can see, it was just stuck in the middle of the hall. Mm. Now it looks a little bit unimpressive until you start to put it all in your mind. First of all, it was built in stone. That was massively expensive, and only the really uh, wealthy uh, Anglo-Norman lords could afford to do so. The only other uh, um, stone hall that we have is in Athen Ryan. It was built by the Birminghams, who are the next tier down in wealth compared to the Burgs. And basically, 
what you would have is, is the, the public, the town hall basically, where the, where the, uh, the urban come and receive his petitioners and work out what has to be done. And then when he's gone, somebody would uh, take over his duties. That's probably where the Marshall family came in. I mean, they were literally known as Marshall because they were the Marshall of the, um, the Burgers of Ulster. When they died out, well, who the hell is going to take over? What about the son-in-laws, Lynch? So you can see how they, from zero to hero in a very short period of time, just by, look, be, by being lucky enough to wed, marry, marry well. In the right place at the right time. In the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't have much records of this, but, we, but it was obviously still standing in the late 1200s. And we do have a record, I think, from 1282 of refurbishment of uh, Galway Castle. So presumably the castle and the hall were still in existence. And this was a totally secular building? It looks a bit oh, like a church. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There, there wouldn't have been any um, clerical involvement in it. I mean, obviously there would have been priests coming and going here to petition the Earl for this, that, or the other administrative business, mm. but there wasn't any uh, clerical involvement with that. It was purely a secular business. Like any town hall mm. uh, nowadays, that's where the town council would meet and get their business done. The, the, uh, the last Earl did leave an heir, a, a six-month-old daughter, and she was sent off to England and she married into the English royal family. And that's why Elizabeth, uh, Queen Elizabeth I had title to Galway, because she was directly descended from the, the Red Earl by virtue of being a member of the royal family. So, so Queen Elizabeth I is a Galway woman, really. Oh, God, don't say that. <laughs> I mean, they, they would have, uh, they, they certainly stressed that at the time because mm. they were under siege for both the Anglo Irish and the Gaelic Irish, and it was uh, by the late 1500s when she was alive. And as a result of the English ongoing English conquest, Ireland was in an uproar. So they certainly wanted to strengthen ties with um, England, purely you know, to keep the, to save their own um, town and city. Over the five centuries that the tribes of Galway presided over their walled city, Ireland was experiencing successive waves of often violent colonisation, creating a series of increasingly complex and overlapping ethnic identities on the island. Technically, Ireland had been under official control of the English monarch since 1177, but the reality on the ground was a very different story. Rarely did Crown forces succeed in controlling all of the island at once. Instead, wave after wave of English colonists tried, and usually failed, to maintain control over the land, with vast tracts of territory constantly being occupied, transferred, and then seized again. Some regions, like Ulster, continued to resist English control well after Henry VIII had proclaimed himself King of Ireland in 1542. Indeed, Ulster's early success in resisting colonisation was precisely the reason why it was chosen for mass plantation some 50 years later. Throughout the Middle Ages, outside the walled city of Galway was a fierce landscape of warring factions, Irish, English, and everything in between. Not to mention the rogue pirate clans of the O'Flaherties, also known as the Fearsome O'Flaherties, who terrorised travellers, fishermen, and city dwellers alike. Inside the walls, the tribes still traded away, a strange hodgepodge of hypernicised Norman settlers and anglicised native Irish, all able to put their differences aside in order to worship at the great unifying altar of commerce. I wanted to ask Adrian about the famous Statutes of Kilkenny, a set of laws made in the 15th century that forbade colonists from participating in native Irish culture, lest they become assimilated with the enemy. This problem of colonists becoming, quote, more Irish than the Irish themselves, had been an endemic problem for generations of English administrators. 
So how did it go down in this strange and isolated English settlement on the West Coast? The, the statues of the Kilkenny, did they take effect here in any real way? Not really, no. And, re- and remember, they didn't really pertain to the Gaelic Irish. They were uh, pertaining to the Anglo-Irish, telling them, would you stop you know, dressing like Irishmen, speaking like Irishmen and acting like Irishmen, act like Englishmen. They did pertain to any Irish who was living among them to say, look, if you're called um, you know, William Don, call yourself William Brown instead. But that didn't really have any practical effect. Okay. You know, and for all this, uh, they were saying to keep to the English language, they were written in French. <laughs> so there's a little bit of self-contradiction going on there. And out of interest, would they have called themselves Irish, the merchants here? They would have called themselves the English of, I- the English of Ireland or the uh, Anglo-Hiberni, the Anglo-Irish. They wouldn't really have called themselves Irish at all until significantly later. However, uh, and we inter- our Unionist cousins up north encountered the same problem. They seen themselves as British, but the British, they're Irish. Mm. One of the St. Lawrence Bardles, Barons um, was asked by Queen Elizabeth, you know, and can you speak English? Now, it was a way of putting him in his place. Of course he spoke English. He was an English man and he had no actual Irish ancestry. His family had married exclusively among the uh, Anglo-Irish colony. But you see that time and time again from the early period over here, the English in Ireland is regarded as, you know, not quite English. Mm. You know, not like us here in England. Mm. And so that did uh, naturally enough lead to a distinct identity. It was still English, but an Anglo-Irish identity. And by the 1340s, they were referring to themselves as, Anglo-Hiberni, Anglo-Irish or Anglos-Hibernos, the English of Ireland. And uh, for very different reasons, their descendants in the early 1600s began to unite with the Gaelic Irish um, under the title of Éireannach, Irish. I mean, many of these New English were fleeing from England, even if they did participate in the conquest of Ireland, were Catholic. So they were coming here as religious refugees in a way, and once they had established themselves in here and kicked out any of the native Irish and established properties, they were happy then to identify with them as Irish. And so you had three nations making up the uh, Irish Catholic Confederation in the 1640s, the Gaelic Irish, the Anglo-Irish, and the New English. And that was the first independent Irish state. We didn't see one like it again until 1919. As we walk up through the old city, Adrian and I stop in front of Teenochton's pub, which, funnily enough, our keenest listeners might remember as being a sponsor of one of our episodes in Season 2. This corner building, with its decorative medieval windows and thick stone walls, hints at the international aesthetics of Galway's mercantile elite, whose constant trade with Spain and Portugal had left them with curiously Iberian tastes. The house, incidentally, was once owned by the infamous Humanity Dick, also known as Richard Martin of the tribes of Galway, He got his nickname, Humanity Dick, from King George IV, owing to his lifelong campaign against animal cruelty. As I was saying, this is kind of the epitome of the tribes because, I mean, it's a big townhouse. It doesn't take in just what's Teen Octons. It goes all the way down to the Casbah Wine Bar and the Coffee Work Press. That has one big single building and it was built sometime in the late 1400s. Now, we know it was built in the 1400s because... um, Galway was going through, you know, a bit of an economic boom at the time, and the giveaway is the architecture. If you look there, you can see some Andalusian um, stonework, and there's more inside uh, the structure as well, I'm sure. That ties in with Lynch's Castle, which we know was built in around 1480, and they were doing that because they had established strong um, ties via the wine trade with Iberia. So, I mean... If you go to um, Iberia, you will find an awful lot of Andalusian and Moorish architecture. So they obviously went down there and thought, ah, 
I like that. I'll put that in my uh, window when I get back to Galway. And there are several references to Lynch's and Kerwin's and Fonts and other uh, Galway merchants working down in Lisbon as far back as the 1460s or earlier. I think the earliest references I've got have been throughout the 1440s. Okay, and so this would have been one family living in this whole This thing. would have been one family townhouse as far as I know. I mean, Cheen Upton is mostly associated with the Martins, but I think the uh, people who built it and owned it were the Kerwins. The thing is, at one point in time, they married into the uh, Martins, and they obviously made a lease with the family, so, look, it's our house and we'll own it, but you pay us rent and live here. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was uh, Richard Martin's uh, townhouse, the guy who founded the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and uh, whenever his descendants come back from Canada, uh, we usually meet up here and have a few jars and meet up in the restaurant. You were saying that behind the plasterwork in these houses, these are pretty much intact medieval houses. Certainly in this part of town, the Shankapper, the old quarter, or as it's termed now, the Latin quarter, there probably is still an awful lot of architecture behind the plasterwork, which is relatively intact from the late 15th century. I, I mean, as you can see, there hasn't been any real... They've obviously modernised and kept the place up beautifully, but essentially it is the same townhouse that they put up in the late 1400s. Intriguingly, as we walk along the colourful streets, we can see that in some spots the 19th century plaster work has been chipped away, giving a little glimpse here and there of highly decorated medieval stonework. Adrian pointed out one in particular, which was peeking out from a wall on Cross Street. Now what we're looking at here is basically um, nice stonework showing birds and fantastic animals, and in one case a wolf which are two for wolf cubs feeding. Now, this would be purely decorative. I don't think it has any heraldic function or anything what, at all. Maybe? It's like what people put up in front of their buildings nowadays, like gnomes or sculptures or whatever. Mm. They like to look at them. There's no deep meaning or anything behind it. However, it is, as far as I know, the only uh, representation in stone of the Irish wolf, which is now extinct. You know, so I mean, there are little gems like this when you realise what you're looking at. Kieran Hickey published an absolutely wonderful book a few years ago on the Irish wolf and uh, you know representations of it in Irish culture as regards name. I mean, most names like Connor, Conquivar, and so forth. The, the 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 form of it comes from wolf. I mean, we're hound strictly speaking. But there's so many Irish names that are based on you know associations with the wolf. Not for any deep mystical meaning, but because the wolf is a fierce animal, mm. and men are men. We're fierce too. Sure. You know? okay. <laughs> so. so- if you look at the map of Galway done back in the 1660s, uh, it showed lads chasing deers literally across the river. So imagine what it was like 200 years before that again, when the wolf was still actually a widespread animal all over the country. People, you know, don't take things so much from tradition as from what they see around them, and they call it tradition, mm. you know. So, so th- this looks like it's, a, it's, a win- it's above the lintel of a window, and it looks like somebody has kind of chipped away the plaster just around it, and, and th- you see this in a, on a few buildings in Galway, so you can see these kind of almost heraldic looking uh, things on the walls. How did they find them, and how long have these been exposed? That's been there for a good 30 years or so. I, I certainly can't remember it as anything different, but for me, when they plastered these buildings back in the 18th and 19th century, um, they covered a lot up. I think people simply forgot, as you do. If it's not there and you don't see it, you don't know what's in it. But over the course of the last several decades, natural enough plaster work has had to be removed for remedial work, and lo and behold, they find the likes of that under it. Now, how much more is there on these buildings remains to be seen. But it just shows you, I mean, to all intents and purposes, that looks like a fairly recent modern house, maybe of 19th century design. But obviously, if you go beneath the uh, the, pa- the pla- paperwork, the plasterwork a bit, you will find it's actually older. I mean, that has to date from sometime in the late, maybe even the middle of the 15th century. Okay, so who knows what's left to, who knows to find? Who what's left, yes. Okay. Yeah. 
Some of the most prominent of this medieval masonry reveals what are known as marriage stones. These are veritable advertisements for the various alliances made between the 14 tribes. Typically, they show the crest of each family side by side, or sometimes even combinations of both. And, as Adrian told me, they may have had a much more than decorative function. So these would have been a kind of, would it have been like a wedding present, a celebration of a specific marriage? We're not entirely sure. Uh, they could have been in some cases. In many cases, I'd say they were simply put up to say this is Margaret French and John Martin's house. Mm. Just to, you know, to commemorate a marriage, or not just a marriage, but a family. Mm. Because these coats of arms would have been handed down time and time again from one branch to the other. Uh, they may even have been logos for you know, illiterate people. I mean, where the hell is French? Yeah, I, I can't read, but I can identify his coat of arms. Okay. So I, I often wonder, like, if there isn't a way that they could have transported their gloves by, you know how you know you put a mark or logo mm. on Supermax or McDonald's or whatever. Mm. Why couldn't they have done the same thing with their barrels and their goods? Mm. You know, they, had, they had to identify them somehow, seeing as people were illiterate back then. Mm. And maybe that was a factor in it. I mean, it's something of... I haven't really developed in thinking myself, but they had to serve some function other than to show off. Mm. I mean, they had the application. So what we're looking at here anyway is a French coat of arms. A French, A.F. Arthur French, presumably, married Margaret, but she's become French now. But I think that's actually, a, I think it's the Fallon coat of arms. Now, again, Fallon is unusual. Fallon and Kerwin and a few other families were pure, obviously Gaelic-Irish. Mm. So what were they doing in the town? But obviously they'd come in they had any troubling claims on large lordships such as Eher Connacht or Clan Rickard and they worked within the town and worked their way up the business. I mean if you look there at the map which I'll show you later on date from the 1660s showing the town it shows yeah, the tribes of Galway coats of arms but also a number of other families as well who were certainly never included among the official tribes much later but plainly during the, active, the, the, the time itself they uh, worked and interacted and even held office here I think there was a couple of um, bailiffs by the name of uh, Fallon who worked in the corporation as well in the 1500s. So, yeah, it was an English town, but it was also an Anglo-Irish town as well. As we file past these marriage stones, each one marking out grand mercantile townhouses, I was beginning to see my hometown in a totally different light. These weren't simply a row of houses. This was a very carefully designed procession. I could imagine a late medieval visitor to the city following my very same path and looking up at these very same carvings, not marketing health food shops or jewellery stores, but the imposing seats of a powerful oligarchy. If I was to uh, arrive here now in Galway in, let's say, 1615, yeah. um, and I had interest in starting a business, would I be able to just go up and knock on these people's houses? Was it a kind of commercial place as well? It's, uh, I think it was the same commercial rules as before. You have to, you have to put, get a start on the ladder first before you get to the head of it. The best example might be the Darcy's. The Darcy's came from up in Parthry, although it was their uh, original name, and they were in the town for around six generations, and I've come across slight references of, uh, to them here and there. One that became a vice president of Connacht, and of course they initially went up the ladder socially as a result of that. They were then enabled to marry into the other elite social families, but they were able to get education as well. I mean, uh, the Earl of Clan Rickard sponsored the likes of um, the Darcy's to become lawyers. And he oversaw who they would marry, marry to and who they would work with and whatnot. So it was all a way of encouraging 
prospective young men, not any just ordinary liabouts, to come into the town and work with them because they need new blood. I, I mean, you can really get a sense actually for why this in the city of the tribes uh, name stuck when you can imagine walking down here with these big blazoned heralds on one house and across the street another blazoned herald and almost like celebrities kind yes. of like yeah that's what they were doing they were all proclaiming this is the French's this is the fonts that's the lynches over there and another lynch and another lynch and another lynch I mean if you go through uh, Galway you'll see any amount of lynch coats of arms I mean we'll walk up now to a lynch's castle and just to see how many we can spot between here and there okay all right the imposing limestone facade of Lynch's Castle squats right in the dead centre of the medieval city, and fittingly was home to the most powerful tribe of them all, the Lynch's. Almost everything about this building is conspicuous, its unusual size and shape, its elaborate carvings, and its grand windows appearing in the most unlikely of places. Adrian told me a little bit about it. This is a really, really impressive building. It's a huge, big square, what, three stories high, and it's just a big block of, of limestone, I suppose it is? Yes. And some very beautiful carvings on it. So can you tell us about it? Well, it was built sometime in the late uh, 1400s, over uh, several decades. Uh, if you look at the building very carefully, you can see that there's closed-up windows here in it, and this part of the building here was added on at a later stage. And basically, what he did was build from the bottom up, 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 and all the, uh, the stonework there at the very top on the windows is uh, either Andalusian-inspired, you know, carvings that he saw down in Iberia himself as a young man in the 1460s, various coats of arms, merchant marks, and if you look very carefully, his own face. I think I see it. Is on the lintel out there? It is, yes. I, and the, himself and his two wives. Because, Have their uh, faces up there. Yes, Dominic was a bit of a naughty boy, you see. He married well and all that, but... Uh, after his first wife died in the early 1580s, he took up with uh, his uh, second cousin, oh. and he had uh, uh, quite a few uh, children by her. In uh, a petition to the Vatican Curia, 1481, Dominic Dove Lynch confessed to an irregular sexual relationship with his second cousin, Juliella Dean, admitting they, quote, dwelled in the same house. They have often committed fornication and have had offspring, unquote. Mm. He asked the Pope absolve him from being related with prohibited degrees of kinship, quote, and to dispense them to marry, notwithstanding the said impediments to cream past and future offspring legitimate. Now, he could afford to do that because obviously anyone who can afford to build a house like this can afford to either take a mistress and push it off, and then if somebody says, uh-uh, still petition to the Vatican Curia and get off with it. So by the time he died, I mean, he would have been the Michael O'Leary of Galway, if you can think from those terms. I'm not saying Michael O'Leary has had any such regular <laughs> relationships like that, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Entrepreneurially. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was basically a show-off, saying, I'm Dominic Dove Lynch. Who else here is like me? None of you. So, so when this was built, um, other, other tribes would have just had a normal townhouse like the ones that we saw down the way. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there would have been other ones that would have aspired to build something like this. In fact, this wasn't even the tallest or biggest building in town at the wow. time. Okay. There was another one called Ty's Castle, of which nothing survives now in the Lombard Street car park. And it would have been closer to the encastinated uh, turrets you see in uh, Lombardy and northern Italy nowadays big and it would have been 
closer to uh, the Birmingham's castle in Athenry than it would be to this. It's called a castle, but it isn't fortified. This is a, a civilian uh, home. Basically. No, it isn't. Uh, you're quite right now. It's, it's, it's a colloquial, familiar name, but it, it, doesn't, it isn't meant to be defended as such. But we do have references and civil disturbances occurred here in Galway that you could bar the door. So if you want, if you want to go in there at the moment and try to force your way in, there'd be an iron, uh, a wooden block set the back forcing you to uh, prevent you from doing so. And of course, the windows are there so you can drop stuff on people who want to. Okay. So yes, it's not a defensible castle as you and I would understand this, but it is defendable. Okay, all right, very good. Now there is one particular statue that's very unusual with a, <laughs> a little kind of uh, an animal eating another animal's face, it looks like. Could you explain this? I can't. You'll have to get Jim Higgins now to explain that to you. I defer to him and the likes of Christy Kniff to interpret um, architecture like that. You have to put down to simple artistic uh, interpretation of things and making something that looks eye-catching or nice or daft but interesting. Okay. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> sure. Now, I heard uh, uh, um, what I'm sure is an apocryphal story, of course, as a child as well, which a lot of people uh, have heard also, that the lynches were responsible for the word lynch. Is there any truth in that? No. Uh, as far as I know, um, they, they had nothing to do with it. The guy who uh, coined this was uh, Charles Lynch uh, of Virginia, and he, as far as I know, wasn't a uh, descent from the Galwegians, but from uh, an English family called Lynch. Okay. And uh, he... Uh, um, he put his name to a practice that was already fairly common at that point in time and became horrendously common from that point onwards. Right. Uh, I mean, that hasn't died away at all. The last time I was in the States, um, there was a, a, a man lynched uh, in, in Texas. When my great-grandmother lived in America, she saw a guy lynched. So it became a, a name to an already common practice. And so is there any truth in the idea that the mayor Lynch hanged his own son? Ah, uh, no. I've not found anything on that. No, I mean, it's a good story, and mm. it probably was based on something that did happen. But, uh, no, I, I, I found no basis for it at all. Oh, that's no. a pity. Uh, well, I'm sure the sun is delighted. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. Probably best for everyone. Around the corner, Adrian took me into Finnegan's restaurant on Market Street an unassuming building from the outside that has nonetheless maintained some of the original interiors from the days of the tribes. A quick thank you here to Finnegan's for letting us record inside. For the record, the food smelled delicious, so don't hesitate to take a look yourself. Now, this, is, this would be a, a, a grand townhouse by any means. This would have been the Joyce family house in Galway. For most of their uh, era within in Galway, the Joyce were a fairly humble family. I think they only had two mayors. But they got their start um, according to their own family legend when one of them was down in Spain. Still to this day, they call this a fess ermine, but it's not actually a fess at all. If you look carefully at it, it's actually a representation of a scallop shell. And a scallop shell is the mark of a pilgrim who's been to Santiago de Compostela down in Spain. So I presume that what, what we're showing here is actually a long-forgotten basis of the myth that one of the Joyce's sometime in the late 1400s went down to Spain, perhaps Santiago got a pilgrim shell but obviously worked and, and uh, got a bit of a fortune for himself, came back and become one of the bailiffs of Galway. Now we know he was one of the bailiffs because he's mentioned as such when he, the other bailiff and the mayor drowned on the 1st of November 1507 they uh, seemed to fall off the, uh, the, gate, the bridge of Galway where the uh, West Mills was but his family did prosper and uh, at least one if not two of his sons 
did become uh, mayors of Galway. And his grandson, Richard, Richard Joyce, was the guy who put this coat of arms here. And that's his wife, Elizabeth Skerritt. Uh, so this, this is a really, really grand fireplace and we're upstairs here. So um, could you maybe, like, do you have any idea of how these houses were structured? Pretty much like this. I'd say this, you come across all these people saying, well, we've done a really fantastic, faithful uh, reproduction of them. Not always the case. But this mm. is the genuine article. I, I, don't, I don't see anything particularly wrong with it. The roof might have been a little bit lower, perhaps. Mm. But you can see where the joints are put. Mm. The, those are stone joints coming out, supporting the, the roof beams. Mm-hmm. And so this is a fairly authentic reproduction of what it, what it would have been looked like. Mm-hmm. So, and there would have been a room up here and a room downstairs, and that's the whole thing? Uh, I presume there's another one upstairs for, from us again. And they would have had the backyard, of course, which would have been backing on to Lynch's. Okay. Now, that's, that's an interesting contrast, because if the Lynch's out there at Lynch's Castle facing the street, the premier family even among the Lynches of mm. Galway and then you have the Joyce's back here who are very much a second tier family, I mean I don't think Richard um, ever became there and from that point onwards you know, they're there in the council but they're not the, uh, the, the super max of the town, shall sure. we say you know, okay. they're, you know they're, they're goldsmiths instead and uh, the, uh, you touched on the uh, the, the Clatter Ring, and I forgot to mention this area. The Clatter Ring is supposed to have been created by a descendant of this guy, another Richard Joyce, in, uh, the, in the 1690s. Mm. So I'd say goldsmithing was the family tradition. Okay. Our last stop was in the medieval St. Nicholas's Church, whose spire has looked out over Galway since the 13th century, when it was founded in honour of the patron saint of seafarers, St. Nicholas of Myra. Here we come to one of the darker chapters in Galway's history, the Cromwellian Invasion. Many have attributed the very term, Tribes of Galway, to Cromwell himself, intended as an insult for this mercantile town in the west of Ireland that had resisted a siege by his army for a full nine months in 1652. The capture of Galway was a highly symbolic moment in the Cromwellian invasion of Ireland. Most walled towns had succumbed quite swiftly to the brutal onslaught of the new model army. But the rich merchants of Galway had already paid for huge and modern fortifications to protect their valuable port. Consequently, it was the last holdout of Irish forces, and when the city finally succumbed, it marked the end of organised resistance to the invasion. Certainly, Cromwell ensured that the tribes would pay a price for their insubordination. After centuries of controlling the town, the Catholic merchant families were thrown out from their positions of power, which were passed on instead to colonial administrators. The church where Adrian and I are standing was sacked and plundered, and Ireland's once gleaming centre of trade was brought decidedly to its knees. This is a, a really famous map of Galway. It's quite beautiful. When was this made? Around 1664. Um, all of the merchant families of Galway had copies of this map in their house. So and where were they, they would have put that over the fireplace or something, I suppose? Yes, exactly, Sean. This was our town. My God, we were going to get it back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that was pretty much the motivation of it. Um, now, so we see the docks very well in, in this map. They're really quite extensive. Mm. Um, is there any truth in the idea that Christopher Columbus stopped off here? Yes, there is. That's, a, that's actually 100% true. Okay. Yeah, he came here in 15... Sorry, 14, February 1477 on a fishing trip, uh, an expedition from, I think, Portugal to Iceland, and he stopped off in Galway either on the way to or on the way back. Okay. And uh, there's a famous story that uh, he, because uh, he was looking for China, he wasn't looking for America at all, not even America existed, and he was looking for proof that was, there was somewhere that China was somewhere close to or west of Europe, and he came across a story here in Galway that, you know, two people of extraordinary appearance came to land here in Galway on a tree trunk, 
Now we don't know what exactly that is. I mean, some people have said maybe it was Inuit um, coming on their kayaks or something like that, but even so, it's a hell of a long way, especially across the Atlantic. So we don't know what the basis of, but he was using that as kind of a justification for any expeditions to get uh, further west. And we, we know eventually that's exactly what he did manage to do. Okay, right. So Christopher Columbus may well have prayed in oh, this. Oh, he most certainly would have prayed here. There's no doubt about that. I mean, if he was uh, anyways re- observant or a religious, religious person at all, this was the, uh, I think, the only uh, church in the town at the time. Now, you can't point out the exact pew he was in, obviously, huh. because that's long gone. The church has been remodelled. But uh, he was here, he says so, and uh, he would have definitely worshipped in what was in St. Nicholas's at the time. What we're looking at is extensively renovated. I mean, the original of the church would have just been going to the uh, the middle of the aisle. They would have entered all the uh, tombs, few of which survive. You can see the lynch one over there with all that nice fine tracery in there. Mm. But the problem is an awful lot of these tombs were destroyed by the uh, Commonwealth troops in the early 1650s when they came over here. And uh, they just raked and ruined the lot of them. Alright, so, so as we're here then in St Nicholas's Church, right in the centre of Galway, um, would it be fair to say that the Cromwellian invasion uh, was the end of the tribes? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, practically speaking, as regards as uh, people running a town by their own lights, but you know, yes, I mean, they did stay in, in existence. Some of them held power within Galway as uh, state owners and whatnot into the early twentieth century. But yes, that's basically what broke the back of them because uh, once the uh, new English Protestants came in, they held on to power after the next couple of hundred years, and all the tribes did survive. It wasn't really with the same power that they had. Um, or, or even as an entity, you know, they, they, they broke up, they fell apart, and they moved on to other things. It's like anything, you know, three generations and see any family out of a house. Mm. It's the same thing with um, the tribes as a, an institution, if you can even call them that. Okay, and and for for Cromwell, for Cromwell's and Cromwell's forces, and what would this city of tribes have meant symbolically uh, to him, and what did he do to it? Well, what I meant is opportunity. You know, take. I mean, that's what all conquerors do. I mean, they dress it up for religion and political this, that, and the other. But it was land to take and grow prosperity for themselves. Because an awful lot of these Cromwellian uh, adventurers were men with nothing, no land and nothing left to lose. Mm-hmm. And if they had some, they wanted more. So, I mean, all politics and religious excuses and all that aside, it was simply to take and to gain power. And, and what happened to Galway after after Cromwell arrived? It declined. I mean, the problem with um, the uh, New English was none of them were merchants. And they didn't really know how to run, uh, you know, a merchant network uh, like, you know, like the tribes had been doing for generations. It literally was in their blood, and they had built up contacts that the New English hadn't really um, hadn't really much of an interest in doing so. They were interested in being becoming gentlemen and getting other people to work for them, whereas the tribes actually went out into the world and established networks. In fact, that's what they did from that point onwards. They became they started to move to places like London, Lisbon. Uh, New York, Boston, out in, heavily into the West Indies as well because they hadn't the opportunity to do so in their own country anymore because they were religiously disabled as Catholics. Now some of them got around this by becoming Protestants but generally speaking they didn't. They decided to hell with this, let's go to France. And, yeah, and from that point onwards, I mean they'd already been doing this for a full 200 years by this stage but from that point onwards you really see them uh, becoming I won't say business corporations but certainly networks of their families moving to Brittany, to uh, Spain, to is and Malo and uh, elsewhere in Europe, England too to some degree and especially over to the West Indies and parts of North America. 
Okay. And is there any truth to the legend that Cromwell used this church as a stable for his horses? Well, strictly speaking, Cromwell didn't come west of the Shannon, as far as I remember. He uh, didn't uh, come west of the Shannon. He was only in Ireland for six months, so he didn't come to Galway. But yes, no doubt they would have desecrated. You have to remember, according to um, the Puritans like, like him, this wasn't exactly even um, a Christian religion. Catholicism, it was nearly a, a paganism as far as they were concerned. So they were, from their point of view, they were doing God's work in getting rid of this, I won't say even heresy, this paganism. So what, what, what was the big deal about putting um, your horses into it? It was a way of displaying your own power and doing this to the natives. Mm, okay. you know? um, and there's some uh, angels' face, faces uh, bashed in over there. Does yes. that date from the conquest? It does, definitely, because, uh, again, that was icon- uh, they, they called themselves iconoclasts because they hated any kind of iconography. In some uh, various of religion, including Christianity, you're not allowed to put up icons or fate or displays or anything like that. They didn't like it for whatever reasons of their own, so they destroyed them. I think there's only one angel left um, here with a nice smiling face, and all the other ones are, uh, have their faces completely wiped out. Okay, all right. So, so to, to, to wrap up then, um, I find it amazing that you mentioned that some of the tribes hung around in positions of importance until the 20th century. Mm. And of course, um, anyone who, who knows people from Galway will know a lot of Lynches and a lot of de Burks and a lot of um, uh, Martins and, and what have you. Are they still running things in any real way? Oh, I don't know. Maybe locally I were in their own uh, kitchen, but uh, the power has seeped out of their hands and has moved on to others at the moment. And in time, the same thing will happen to them. New people will come in and displace them. There might be locals from here in the area, they might be from elsewhere in Ireland or new immigrants or whatever. Power, you know, is like all things. It has its time and then its time is over. Okay, so very much keeping in the tradition of the tribes. <laughs> tribes will come and tribes will go. Tribes will go, yes. it's time to bring this episode to a close. I'd like to give a huge thanks to Adrian Martin for taking so much time to give us an idea of this amazing history. His book, The Tribes of Galway, 1124 to 1642, is a veritable gem of information about Galway and medieval Ireland in general. So if you're interested in finding out more, I highly recommend you get your hands on that. Don't forget to share and rate the episode if you like it. And as always, do check out our exclusive extra content over on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. If you want to check out some images of the sites we discussed in today's episode, we'll be posting them on our website www.theirishpassport.com. The music you heard in today's episode is Flamenco Spirit by Sunsearcher from their album Sunsearcher Spirit. One last thank you as always goes to biddymurphy.com, our sponsor for season 3. So from the legendary Galiva, City of the Tribes, Slawn from me and until next time on the Irish Passport Podcast. <laughs>